The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 11. We're going to start in the very first verse of John 11, and I'm going to give you some other cross-references here in a minute that you can jot down, but what John, is, what John 11 is about is, as John Owen the Puritan said, the death of death. John, Owen, uh, John 11 is about the picture of Jesus eradicating death, claiming victory over death. Um, this is the picture. Uh, a, a simeon is a, a sign. So Jesus does seven signs throughout the Gospel of John. Each sign points to a greater spiritual reality, right? This is the seventh sign. So this points to really one of the greatest spiritual realities that Jesus accomplishes, which is the abolition of death itself. Now, before we look at verse 1, I really want to, you to think about what the Bible says about death. Jot down this verse, Romans 5.12. We looked at it last week. But Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and then death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Adam was the representative. And in Adam, we all sinned. And therefore, Paul's saying, we were all subject to death. So let me give you some points about death, just as a framework for John 11. First, Paul says, death now is universal. Death is universal. It impacts all men. Death spread to all men. That means that everyone that has ever lived has died. Think about all the great ones. Think about Moses, the Apostle Paul, Dwight Moody, Andy of Mayberry. They all died. I was just thinking about this. The, the cast of my favorite TV show, Magnum P.I., uh, John Hillerman, who played Higgins, Roger Mosley, who played T.C., they're dead. We're just hanging on to Tom Selleck now. Um, so er everybody that you know will die. Death is universal. Also what Paul says, think about this. Death is unnatural. Death spread to all men. Death was the, was the curse on sin. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, the original intention wasn't death. The original intention was obedience and that they would live forever. So death is unnatural. Paul says the wage of sin is death. And that's why when you go to a funeral, you never get over seeing that body in the casket. You never get over that. It just, especially if it's a loved one that you love dearly, it, it's, it's really hard to understand how now the soul is separated from that body. And the reason for that is, is because it's unnatural. I know we say, you know, there's nothing sure in life but death and taxes. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. This was an unnatural reality. Third, death is final. Death is final. Jot down this verse, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. What the writer of Hebrews means by that is there's no post-mortem opportunities to change how your life went. There's no reincarnation. Remember, Patton thought that he was a warrior that had fought in the, the Greek wars and all this stuff going back. There, no. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory where you can pay off some of the sins that you've done after you've died. Death is final. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And he says this, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. 
A living dog is better than a dead lion. Because while you're still alive, you still have an opportunity to change your life. You still have an opportunity to live virtuously before God. You still have an opportunity to express faith in him. But once you're dead, it's done. Your fate is sealed at the judgment. That's why you need to repent and trust Christ while there's still time. Because death is final. Also, death is sudden. Death is sudden. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is all but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Death is sudden. I was talking to my father-in-law, and he did Campus Crusade at UNC Chapel Hill. And he was walking from a parking lot on campus, UNC Chapel Hill, right in front of the Carolina Inn, a guy stepped off the curb, student, hit by a truck, right in front of him, just like that, gone. I was thinking about one of the first funerals I went to when I was a little boy, was at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. It was my great-grandfather, Earl Myers. And I didn't really know him that well. I was a young boy, and it, but it made an impression on me because it was one of those gothic cemeteries that you see in the movies. It was, uh, it's a famous cemetery. John Dillinger, the gangster, is buried there. Benjamin Harrison, the president, is buried there. Big, big monument. So as a little boy, it, it made an impression on me. And here I am at my great-grandfather's funeral, and I was there with my grandfather, Robert Myers, and I remember he held my hand, and I remember thinking, yes, I know my great-grandfather's gone, but I didn't know him that well, but praise God, I have him with me, Robert Myers. And it seemed like the next 30 years, that's how long he lived, went by just like that. And I remember when he died at his funeral, which I preached, I remember seeing him in the casket, and my mind went back to the Crown Hill Cemetery and how I thought, okay, I'm going to have him for a long time. And those years went by so fast. That's how it is with all of our loved ones. You think that you have them forever. Seems like that. Where you have your parents for a long time or your kids for a long time. But there will be a moment where you say goodbye. And it could come sooner than you think. Because death is sudden. Isaiah says this. Isaiah 46. Remember this. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. What do you do with grass? The same thing I did yesterday. You go and mow, you cut the grass. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's what your life is, Isaiah says. It's like grass. It's like the flower of the field. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And there's a reason why Solomon says in Proverbs, it's good to remember that. It's good to consider death. It's good to think about these things because it helps us live our life well. It helps us put things in perspective. It's important to teach your kids this. I know sometimes we want to shield them from these realities of death and, and all these things, but it's take them to the funeral. Solomon says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. He says, Proverbs 7, 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So it's good to go to the graveyard. It's good to think about your own mortality, that life is short and fleeting. The Bible also says that death is terrible. That death is a terrible thing. There's a reason why David says in Psalm 23 that it's the valley of the shadow of death. It's a valley. David says in Psalm 55, 4, my heart is in an anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. Death is painful. Death is difficult. And listen, if you do not know God, and where your soul will go when you die, death is frightening. Death is frightening. I've heard of Hollywood stars in hospice care screaming and crying like babies because they don't know how to face death. Remember what we just sang? No fear in death. 
No fear in death. The Christian, one of the marks of the Christian is that we die well. We die well. And the reason for that is next, because death is defeated. Death is defeated. This is why, this is the whole point of the gospel. This is the whole point of Christianity, that Jesus came to pay for sins and in so doing, destroy death forever. Let me give you some cross-references. Hebrews 2.9 says this, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he took our death upon himself when he was on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's interesting that death brings people into slavery because we fear it. We, we want to prolong life as long as we can because we don't want to face that reality. And I think much of our entertainment culture is just trying to put death out of people's minds so that they think about something else. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants you to think about everything else besides death because then when death comes and you haven't repented and trusted Christ, he has you. People don't want to think about death because they fear death. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus went down and drank the dregs of death so that we no longer need to fear it. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus Christ on the cross defeated death. So you might be asking, why do Christians then still die? Have you ever asked that question? If Jesus has defeated death, if there's already a resurrection, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father in a resurrected body, all of us who have trusted in Christ will receive a resurrected body, why do we still die? And the reason for that is, is because If God were to eliminate death right now, he would also need to eliminate sin. And if he eliminates sin, now there is no more time for repentance for sinners. So God is prolonging this age where there's sin and death in order for the the full number of those who are supposed to be saved to come into the fold. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel must go forth. The full number of the elect must come in, and then the end comes. And that's when sin and death is ended forever, not before. So we are still subject to death, but it is a temporary death, praise be to God. And we'll talk about that more momentarily. What this means for the Christian, though, is is that, as Paul says in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. You don't need to fear death if you're a Christian, because you know the, the, the outcome. You know the promises of God. You know that as soon as you die, your soul is going to go to be in the presence of the Lord. And so you can live this life not worrying about the future, how you're going to die, when you're going to die, because you know to be, to be with Christ here is to know his fellowship in the Holy Spirit. To die is to be in fellowship with him personally. And so really we can look at death and stare it in the face with confidence. With confidence. We don't need to be afraid. My friend wrote a song talking about his death and he said, someday when the sun sets on me, find a spot by a live oak tree and you know what to do. Put me in my boots in my black suit. He says, put me in my boots in my black suit. I'm not afraid. That's what we do in Texas. When you get buried, you know, you, you put on the suit in the boots. Um, I don't know what you do in North Carolina. I think it's those little loafers with the, uh, <laughs> with the horseshoe buckles. But in Texas, we say, put me in my boots. I'm, I'm not afraid to go. 
I'm, I'm ready. I remember when my grandpa got his, um, he had got a leukemia diagnosis at the Houston Medical Center, and we drove south to Lake Jackson. He said, take me to the, the Tex-Mex joint. We're going to get some fajitas. You know, it's that confidence that the, the Christian has because of Christ. So that's the big context here of death. Now I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 11. And I'm going to give you eight points this morning. Eight points. Don't worry. We're going to go through these quick. Eight points that I want you to see that gives really a a worldview of understanding the Christian and their relationship with death. And in so doing, what I want you to come away with is I want you to know how to live better now to live before Christ now with that confidence. Okay, first point, God uses death to bring him glory. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Verse one, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's coming later in the Gospel of John, but John is just giving us this identification. He said, this is whose brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent to him. Now, Jesus is, is about 30 miles away on the other side of the Jordan River. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What he means by that is that the purpose of this specific illness with Lazarus is not for him to die. That's not the purpose. The end game of this whole episode is that he might be glorified, that he might be lifted up. To be glorified means to see the attributes of Christ and to worship him, to see his his magnificence and his holiness and his power. And when you see that, that you would worship him. Jesus says, that's the purpose of all this. Now, what's interesting about this, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is that his dear friends are going through an immense trial. Does Jesus use our trials to bring him glory? Yes, he does. In fact, if you are a Christian, he's always doing that. He's always doing that, that his power might be perfected in your weakness, that he might be seen when you're in the valley, that you might depend upon him and you see his character and he delivers you and he receives the praise. And this is why I believe that God allowed sin into the world. Why did God allow sin in the world? He could have stopped Satan from entering the garden and tempting Adam and Eve. Why did he allow that to happen? If there hadn't been a fall, there would be no need for grace and mercy. When we experience grace and mercy, guess what happens? He's glorified and praised. So God allowed evil in this world ultimately for his glory that we might see his redemption. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.5. He says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, listen, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in seeing God's grace, his mercy, he is glorified and he is worshiped. And that right there is the most important thing in your life is to see Christ's glory and be changed. Don't pray, God, make me wealthy. Pray, God, make me holy. Help me to see you for who you really are, no matter the cost. That should be your prayer. And look at this. Look what Jesus does. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? Because he wanted them to see his glory. And he loved them. And so he wanted them to go through the valley a little longer so that they would see the full expression of his magnificent glory. So that reminds us, doesn't it, that every difficulty we face is for his glory. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. When you're going through the trial, when you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death, don't just pray, God, get rid of this. Say, God, show me your glory. 
Show me how you will deliver me. Let me see your character in the valley. Second thing we see, Christ's death will happen according to God's divine plan. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. You remember, they just fled, through, fled from Judea because people wanted to kill them in the temple. So he, he left Judea, uh, left the temple, went all the way across the Jordan. He's ministering there. He hears this word, and then Jesus says, let's go back. And I love how the disciples feel the need to remind Jesus of things that he already knows. Have you ever done that? Don't you? It always strikes me as funny when people are praying and say, you know, God, uh, you know, Cynthia is in the hospital, and, and we, we, we really, she has can't, you know, as if God doesn't know, right? God knows. Jesus knows. And the disciples say, look at verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? In other words, don't you know the, the circuit? Of course he knows. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, this is a, an expression. Stay with me. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying in the Jewish day, they, they measured their hours by the, the number of hours of daylight. So he's saying there's 12 hours of daylight. This is a fixed way that the Jews were able to tell time. And we do something similar today. I know we have 24 hours, but we have roughly 12 hours of daylight. And what Jesus is saying is, is the number of daylight hours are fixed. There's a certain number of daylight hours. You can't, God's fixed that in place. Then comes the night. And if you walk in the night, you're going to stumble and, you're, and you fall. But the daylight hours, you can see. You can see the light of the sun. Jesus is using this as a metaphor for his ministry. He's saying, right now for my ministry, it's still daylight time. It's still daylight time. There's still work for me to do. I can still see. I can still do the things that I need to do. But when the night comes, what's the night? The night is when the Messiah is going to be cut off. The night is when he is going to be crucified and, and is going to go in the grave. Jesus is saying, look, still daylight. There's still 12 hours in the day. So, I know that I can go to Judea, and I can help Lazarus, and I know that I will not be killed yet by the Jews. That's what he's saying. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, this happened. John 7, 7.30 says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20 says, But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What Jesus is saying is, is that his life, his ministry is orchestrated according to the sovereignty of God. And guess what? So is your life. Your life, the days of your life, the span of your life is orchestrated by the sovereignty of God. Do you think that you can add a single day to your life to which God has already ordained? No, you cannot. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You can't do it. You can't add a single hour to which God has ordained. It's fixed. It's certain. Kind of makes you think about all the people that are worrying at the gym. You know, when you go to the gym, maybe these few extra crunches will give me more time. Well, God's already ordained it. Death is according to God's timetable. There was a, a general in the Civil War. He fought for the wrong side, but still a godly man. His name was Thomas Jackson. And I always remember this quote, especially in the Marine Corps. He says, my religion teaches me to feel as safe in bed as in battle. To feel as safe in bed as in battle. And he used to ride his horse with Shells going off, bullets whizzing by his head, and he would stay on his horse because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. And that's the Christian. That you, it doesn't mean we're reckless. doesn't mean that we're foolhardy and jump out of airplanes without parachutes. But it means that we trust in the sovereignty of God over our life. Third, death is not the end. 
Look at verse 11. Death is not the end. It's not annihilationism or we cease to exist. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The way that the Bible refers to death is through this metaphor of sleeping. All throughout Scripture, the Bible calls death sleeping. Why? Because death is not the end. The soul goes on. It's as if the body is sleeping, but it's not that the person ceased to exist, and that's why the Bible always refers to uh, death. Well, I shouldn't say always, but many times refers to death as sleeping. Deuteronomy 31, 16, this is to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Daniel 12, 2 says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You remember when Jesus healed the little girl, Matthew 9, 24, he said, go away to the servants. He said, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7 is described by Luke as sleeping. At the end when they had stoned him, Luke says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall be all be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. When Jesus describes Lazarus as sleeping, when the Bible describes death as sleeping, that doesn't mean, as some have taught, that the soul is asleep. Some teach that, that the soul is still with the body, and that the soul is sleeping there. No, 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 no. The soul immediately leaves the body and goes into the presence of the Lord. That's what, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He said to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Remember Jesus to the thief on the cross, what did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. His body would be buried. Soul would be with him in paradise. The, the, the soul goes to, be, to, to heaven with with God, the body is said to be sleeping in the grave. Point being, death is not the end. It is the separation of the soul and the body. The disciples simply don't understand the metaphor that Jesus is using. They should have known it from the Old Testament, but look at verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. If he's taken a siesta, he's going to get up, right? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, look, how many times, you know, this is one of those motifs that you see over and over and over and over again in the Gospels, where Jesus says something, the disciples go, huh? I don't get it. And Jesus says, okay, let me just spell it out for you very simply. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. There again we see, he's saying, look, this is a good thing actually that, that we weren't there because you are going to see the power of God on display and you are going to believe even more so. Your faith is gonna be increased that I am indeed the son of God. Fourth thing that I want you to see, Christ is worth dying for. Christ is worth dying for. Look at verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, I love this, let us go also, or let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas is epic. He's epic. It's like Braveheart. You know, many, many years from now, you'll be alone dying in your beds, and you'd be willing to trade all the days to this day to that, to come back here and tell our enemies they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Okay. Thomas is epic. Now, he, wasn't, he didn't understand what Jesus said earlier. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier? He said, it's, it's still daytime. They're not going to touch us. They're not going to hurt us. Thomas completely misses that. So that's not good. But what is good, what is good is that he's willing to lay down his life for Christ. He's willing to give up his life 
for the cause of the kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the, that's the call of repentance and faith. It's the call to take up your cross and follow Christ. That's the demand that Jesus asks of each of us, each of us. The writer of Hebrews says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's the call for all of us to lay down our lives for Christ. Remember what Jim Elliott, the missionary, who's killed by the Indians that they were ministering to in South America, he said, he is no fool who gives, gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, there's nothing in your life worth eternity. Jesus is worth everything. He's worth everything. And we live in a self-obsessed culture this is the world that we live in. We live in a self-obsessed culture that says the most important thing is you, right? What you, your proclivities, your desires, your happiness. Sure, you can leave him as long as it what? Makes you happy. You do you. You be happy. Christianity says there's something outside of you that's more important than you, and it's his kingdom. It's Christ. He is infinitely valuable. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man walking in a field and discovers a treasure. And does what? Goes and sells all that he has. Buys that field so he can possess that treasure. Is that what Jesus is to you? Is that what Jesus is to you? Your ultimate treasure. That you would be willing to trade everything for. For him. Now, Thomas is misguided for sure. You know, he, he, he's not tracking. But he understands this much, that Jesus is worth giving up his life for. And so he is. Next we see, fifth, Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So it's a, long, it's a long trip from where he was. We don't know how long he took that journey, but by the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb buried for four days. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. It's literally a suburb of Jerusalem. It's literally two miles outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem. Verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. What, what, John is, is telling us here is that Martha and Mary were popular people. They are up there. They're like young life Christians. They're, they're up there in society. People like them. That's, that's what he's saying. Lots of Jews. He's saying residents of Jerusalem had come out of Jerusalem down to Bethany uh, to, to grieve with them. Verse 20, when Martha heard that G Jesus was coming, she went and met him. So Martha here somehow that Jesus is coming, but Mary doesn't hear. And so she remains seated in the house. Martha hears, Martha leaves. Verse 20, 21, Martha said to Jesus. So she meets Jesus somewhere outside the city of, of Bethany, probably not far away. And she says to Jesus, Lord, curious, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice her theology. She is a, a remarkable theologian. Martha is. She knows the power of Christ. She says, if you would not have been here, he would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Does she have faith? Absolutely. She says, look, I know that you can turn this tragedy into triumph. I know what you can do. I know that you can ask of God anything and you can make it happen. That's Jesus' power. She knows what he's capable of. She has great faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So Jesus states his intention plainly, that he's coming for a resurrection party. That's what Jesus is about right here. Now, Martha, again, she's, she understands 
Daniel 12 too. She understands that on the last day, there will be a resurrection. And so she says to Jesus, she doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. She says to Jesus, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she says, Jesus, you're telling me what I already know, that yes, of course I know that he will be raised again. But Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. This is another one of Jesus's great I am statements. Remember, I am is the divine name of God that Yahweh gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh is the, the way it's spelled out in the Hebrew Bible. But Jesus says, I am, I am the sovereign Lord God who is The essence of who I am is that I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus saying, I am the victory over death. I am the resurrection. And that's what makes Christianity so distinct, is we have a resurrected Lord. That Jesus really did go through death. He really died. They really stuck a spear in his side. He was dead. And he was in the ground for three days, and he was raised to life again in a resurrected body. Only Christianity has that. That's why everybody wants to attack the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, then you can't stop the claims of Christianity. But it is true. It is true. And all the disciples died for that truth. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he means by that also is that not only is he the resurrection for himself, but he's the resurrection for all those who will believe in him. He's the only source of resurrection. And this, as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, this is what captivated people, right? There's lots of gods. There's lots of gods, and, and, and the general thesis of every religion is you serve this god, this god helps you, maybe this god can grant you this afterlife, do you remember when Paul goes to Athens? What was his message throughout the streets of Athens? It was the resurrection. They said, wow, this is, this is interesting. We got to get this guy up on Mars Hill to hear him. This is really fascinating. And Paul comes and he argues about the resurrection from the dead, which Jesus grants. Jesus is the one who gives resurrection. That's an important point for the Christian apologetic. Islam does not have that. Hinduism does not have that. No other religion has the promise of resurrection as does Christianity. Jesus is the source of life. There is no other spirituality outside of Christ. Don't complicate things. It's not in some sort of transcendental meditation It's not in some type of weird fasting or Zoroasterism or any of that nonsense or vibes or tarot cards or all that demonic stuff. The true spirituality is Christ. And all the grace is found in him. That's why Christianity, it's very simple. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. And there's no other answer to death outside of Christ. There's no other answer to death outside of Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. But, six, faith in Christ is necessary to have this life. Look at the second part of verse 25. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Notice what is required to become a Christian. I ask this question all the time to people, all the time, even even to children. How do you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? I need to start being a good person. I I need to get my life in order. I need to study the Bible. That's how I know. What does Jesus say is required to become a Christian? Belief. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's that simple. It's that simple. There's no trek through the valley of the crescent moon to find a holy grail and drink from it. You know what I'm talking about? There's no works that you have to do. It's simple. 
For some, it's too simple. It's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that. It's so simple. It really is. You can believe right now. You can believe right now. You don't have to go do. In fact, you have to stop doing and repent of that. And say, Jesus, I believe. That's it. So let me ask you, do you believe? Are you still sitting on the fences? Still trying to work to get your life in order? Still on some spiritual quest in the name of Christ? Christ says, stop your spiritual quest and look to me. Remember what John said in John 3? He said, Jesus is like that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. Remember all the people were bitten by serpents in the wilderness? And God told Moses to make a bronze serpent. And he said, lift it up. Everybody who looks to that serpent will be instantly healed. John says, Christ is like that serpent. Look to him. Believe in him. And just like that, God as a promise gives you that resurrection life. It's that simple. Even a child can do it. Put away your self-absorption trying to work. Put it away. Repent of it and look to Christ. And then you will have resurrection in life. Look at her response, verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She says, I believe And therefore, if you are in Christ, you will see Martha in heaven because she believed and trusted in Christ. Seventh point I want you to see. Seventh point I want you to see. Jesus mourns the death of his own. Jesus mourns the death of his own. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, she says something very similar to what Martha had said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she too has this faith in Christ. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, look at this, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Greek word for troubled is terasso. It means distressed. So here you see the humanity of our Lord the humanity of Christ. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's truly man. And as as a man, he loves these people. If you ever ask this question, if Jesus knew that he was about to heal them, about to raise Lazarus from the dead in 10 minutes, why would he be troubled at the news of his death? You know, if I'm here, I'm thinking I'm rolling in, you know, and I'm all upbeat and skippy. I'm singing skippity doodah. Uh, I'm not crying. But what moves Jesus to be troubled? And as we'll see, weep. Verse 35. It's his love and his compassion for Lazarus. That Lazarus's life was precious to him. Psalm 116, 115 says, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I'm always struck by that story in, in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned. And Stephen says, I, 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 he looks up and he says, I see the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus stood up for him. Think about this, that if you're one of Christ's sheep, he loves you so much that he mourns for your death when you die. He grieves. He loves. He has compassion. He cares. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows every valley of the shadow of death that we are walking through. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And no matter what, 
the darkest day that you will ever face, you are not walking through that alone. Your Lord knows, and he's interceding for you, and he sent his Holy Spirit to sustain you so that you can walk without fear. But the Lord, he loves Lazarus so that he weeps. He weeps because of his great love for him. Eighth and finally, is that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Again, Martha presumes to tell Jesus something he would already know. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Statement of the obvious. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not just tell you that if you believed in me, that you would see the resurrection and the life? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus prays this out loud. He lifts up his eyes, and he prays this prayer in order for the people that are around him to know that the power is coming from him. He's saying, I want you to see that I am indeed the Christ, and I want you all to believe, all these Jews that are here from Jerusalem, everybody that's there, Mary and Martha, all the disciples, I want you all to see that I am indeed the Son of God, that I indeed have this power to conquer death, and that you would know and that you would believe. And when he had said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. And that voice represents the divine power of God. That God accomplishes his acts by his word. When God spoke in the beginning, what happened? The universe was created. When Jesus speaks and he gives a command, what happens? Lazarus will come out. All of the cosmos obeys the commands of Christ. All of it. The writer of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by a word, by a word. So all of the cosmos responds to the word of Christ. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And the man who had died, Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And I think that pictures our frail humanity, that we are subject to, to death, subject to to the curse of sin. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Now this, remember, is a sign, right? Simeon said at the very beginning, this is a sign. What does the sign picture? What is this supposed to picture? Think about this. Who does Lazarus represent? The Christian. Lazarus represents you if you are in Christ. Here's what's fascinating about this. He comes out and he's clothed. I mean, you just think, I always, this is almost humorous, right? You think of this mummy coming out. You know, he's wrapped in all this burial linens. He can't move his hands and feet and he stumbles out. It, it, it's almost like a far side comic, Right? Why, what, what's, you know, what is all this picture? And I think it represents the fact that our, in our former lives, we are enslaved in bondage to sin and death. And we're wrapped in those linens in our own sin. And we are enslaved to our sins. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, dead in our sins and trespasses. But Jesus has the power. This is why it's so important to understand the sign. Jesus has the power to deliver anyone from the death of their sin, from the bondage of their sin. Have you ever encountered somebody and you said there's no hope for that person? Lie. 
There's no one that's alive that's too far from the grace of Christ. There's no one too dead that Jesus in his power cannot say, I give you new life. And that is the essence of Christianity, is the new life in Christ. Spiritually speaking, when you come to Christ, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. This is your story. At some point in your life, you were dead. You were wrapped in the linens of sin. And through a message, Christ called you to himself, and you woke up. It's not that you cleaned up your life. It's that you were resurrected spiritually. Looking forward to the one day when you will be resurrected physically on the last day. So this story, this sign, is a picture of what Christ does in your life. And as Jesus says, all that's required is for you to believe. And this new life is yours. So believe. He's conquered death. But you must receive it as a gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the conquering of death. That you went down into the grave, that since you were perfect, death did not reign over you, but you defeated it, and you defeated it not only for yourself, but all those who put their faith in you. Lord, we ask for this new life if we don't already have it. Lord, we confess that you are Lord and Savior, that you are the Son of God who came to deliver us from sin and death forever and ever. We thank you for this hope. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can live our lives not not in anxiety about death, but we can face the future without fear, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that the moment our eyes are shut, that we will be in the presence of the Lord. Praise be to God. Glory, hallelujah. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.